This is Sound and Vision from KEXP in Seattle. I'm Emily Fox. This month marked the 40th anniversary of the death of Ian Curtis. Curtis was the frontman of the band Joy Division. Joy Division was probably best known for their song, Love Will Tear Us Apart. Over the span of about two years, Joy Division recorded three albums worth of material and performed 120 shows. Curtis commits suicide the night before Joy Division's tour to the U.S. He was 23 years old. Curtis had struggled with epilepsy and depression. He left behind a wife and child. On May 18th, the anniversary of Curtis's death, KEXP's Kevin Cole chatted with author John Savage about his book called This Searching Light, The Sun and Everything Else, Joy Division, The Oral History. We're going to air portions of that conversation in just a minute, but first, let's check in with Kevin Cole to hear a little more about Joy Division and their legacy. Hi, Kevin. Hey, Emily, how you doing? Good. So I think often when we hear of musicians, you know, dying or even committing suicide um, at a young age, you know, I think we think of like Jimi Hendrix or Kurt Cobain, where their music really took off in a whole new way after their deaths. And I was wondering, is this the case, too, with Joy Division? Not really. I don't think Joy Division had only been together for a couple of years before the death of Ian Curtis. And at that time, at the time of his death, only had one album out. But based on that album, a handful of sing- singles and the strength of their live shows, they'd already developed a significant following that was just uh, growing. And uh, for me, without a doubt, Joy Division would have been as popular. Sure, Ian Curtis's death added to the myth, just like Kurt's did or Jimi Hendrix's did. Uh, but like both of those artists, um, Joy Division songs are incredible. And over time, they've only become more relevant, especially as we've entered the uh, digital era with songs about alienation and loneliness and space. Yeah. What do you think is Joy Division's legacy? Like, what about them as a band or their sound, like, stands out to you, you know, decades later? It's their music. It's the profound beauty of their art. They were unique. Sure, they had influences, uh, uh, the band like Iggy Pop and the Stooges and the darker Bowie era and the Velvet Underground, but their music and their songs didn't sound like anyone else when they recorded them. They were unique, and they were also instrumental in pioneering uh, a new genre, which became known as post-punk. And there's a really great quote in the book from Factory Records founder Tony Wilson. In the context of the time, he said, punk rock was all about saying, F*** you. Joy Division were the first to say, we're fucked. <laughs> and to use the energy and the simplicity of punk to express far more complex issues and, uh, and emotions. And the idea being uh, effed came in, came in part from Ian Curtis's own sense of alienation and loneliness, but also the environment in which he and his fellow bandmates, Bernard Sumner and Peter Hook and Stephen Morris grew up in, which was the depressed, bombed out industrial wasteland that was Manchester. You had that along with Ian's own kind of metaphysical and existential outlook and interest. He was interested in fringe things. He was, he was a big reader and was attracted to the works of uh, writers like William Burroughs and J.G. Ballard, who had a book called The Atrocity Exhibition, uh, which Joy Division had a song called Atrocity Exhibition. So he was capturing this urban alienation and angst that, uh, and they were incredibly unique. 
and the songs haven't haven't aged. They're as relevant now as ever and as beautiful and as unique. Nobody sounds like Joy Division. So I think it's all of those things and what they were singing about that add up to Joy Division's lasting impact and legacy. So let's hear some clips now of your conversation with author John Savage about his book, This Searching Light, The Sun and Everything Else, Joy Division, The Oral History. You talked with Savage about the influence of Manchester and why Joy Division chose the independent factory records over major record labels. And you also discussed the death of Ian Curtis. Let's first start with a question you had about Manchester. So let's start uh, with Manchester and the the environment itself. I want I want to know from you, uh, how important you feel environment is, first of all, because I can't imagine, like, for example, Cigarros coming out of Manchester. And then also, what what was Manchester like? I, th- I think people really need to understand what, uh, what Manchester was like uh, to really fully appreciate where Joy Division, Warsaw Joy Division came out of. Well, to me, you see... When I moved to Manchester in April 79, I, I moved there to get a job in television, in, in a major television company, and those jobs are very hard to get. And Tony Wilson got me the job um, on the, basically so that I'd write about his groups. And obviously the lead group was Joy Division, so I was plunged into that world as soon as I arrived. From a London, I was, uh, you know, I'm a Londoner, I lived in London before. Uh, from Manchester was just, it was another world. It was probably 20 or 20 years behind London in terms of kind of sexual politics and gender politics and probably mental health politics as well. And also it was very, very derelict. London was quite derelict at the time, but there were massive swathes of open space in Manchester um, with nothing there or just rubble. I mean, it really looked as though a bomb had hit it. I remember I saw Perubu's first UK gig there and they actually thought that Manchester looked a bit like Cleveland. So there was a kind of analogy there, these post-industrial cities. And also, I got, um, I heard Unknown Pleasure. That, uh, Tony gave me a white label so that I'd review it. And that was pretty much when I arrived in Manchester. And that record, hearing that record, helped me understand this new environment. And it's something about the ambient space, the, lyri- the lyrics. I mean, in Shadow Play, they say, you know, to the centre of the city where all roads meet waiting for you. So they were talking about urbanism and the city and down the dark streets, the houses all look the same. You know, all those lyrics. Down the dark streets, the houses look the same. And so I saw Manchester very literally through hearing George and it helped me figure out this new environment. Then when it comes to this idea of being a post-punk band, Joy Division turned down major record labels and instead went with the independent record label Factory Records, which was led by Tony Wilson. So they turned they turned down RCA, they turned down Warner Brothers, but there's, I think, a misconception that people have that uh, they released indie records because they didn't have a choice. 
Oh, no, absolutely not. Um, no. There was a definite ideological, ideological commitment on the part of Rob Gretton to be independent, simply because I think there was a financial aspect to it as well. If you sign to, you know, I don't think they got an advance, they got a, they got a weekly wage. But if you sign to a major, you'd get an advance, and then you'd be absolutely crippled paying that back. And some of the punk bands, of course, never, I think, have only paid back their advance, you know, fairly recently. I know at least one punk era band that uh, has never recouped their advance. Yeah. So you were in hot the record company, whereas if you sold, you know, you, I mean, Peter Hook says in the book, if you sold 10,000 copies of Unknown Pleasures, you probably made more money than if you were on a major label selling 200,000. So there was an economic aspect as well as an ideological aspect. And the ideological aspect was, well, we're going to stay in Manchester and do it ourselves. And then, Kevin, you also asked John Savage about Ian Curtis, someone Savage admits he doesn't remember having any personal interactions with. I think that what I can glean about Ian is that he compartmentalised, Yeah. Um, that there was a part of him that nobody really knew. And that was the part probably that ended up, made things end up the way they did. At the time, okay, I didn't know that Ian was ill. The only thing I was told before he died, and I mean, it was about a month before he died, by Alan Erasmus, who's the hidden factory partner. And Alan, I was on a train journey with Alan. He said, well, John, you know, Ian's got problems. He's got real, really bad problems. And that's all I ever heard. You know, it was not more specific than that. I didn't ask. Um, so I had personally had no sense that Ian was ill, which made his suicide such a shock. Um, and um, so it was a big question mark for me. So in going through the book and going through it week by week, day by day almost, I think what came over to me was the crucial factor was his illness. He was very severely ill. He had a severe form of epilepsy. At the time, people didn't really know how to treat it. They treated it with real numb-out drugs, you know, barbiturates, heavy, serious heavy barbiturates, which compounded the problems, really. So I think there was a sense in which he thought he would never get better. And on the top of that, you have the stress of being a very, very charismatic lead singer in a group that's just, you know, it's on the brink. They're, they're going up, 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 up. And you're the front man of, the, of that group and you need to play gigs and tour. And, you know, he just could, physically couldn't do it. If you look at the last couple of months of concerts, a lot of them end in him having a fit or there being some terrible drama. Yeah, the, the last uh, couple of months in the, in the book leading up to his death was really, uh, really difficult to read, hard to read. Um, just because I got the sense that, you know, they didn't know a lot about how to treat epilepsy at that time. No. So you were on these heavy drugs. Uh, on top of that, you mentioned the stress and pressure of being in this band that's exploding. He had family uh, uh, stress as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, as a, as a visionary artist like that, a lyricist like that, um, you know, you tend to really feel. Well, a lot of it's really dark side as well. It gets darker and darker, really. And, I mean, I think the interesting thing about lyrics is is when they started to tip from projecting himself into an imaginary situation, almost like a science fiction situation. He read a lot of science fiction and a lot of kind of Russian novels. Um, so he's projecting on unknown pleasures. He's projecting himself into a situation. And then at some point it tips over and it actually becomes much more personal, which it is on closer. And the tipping, I think one of the tipping... Um, songs is Love Will Tear Us Apart. 
which yeah. they premiered in October 79. Interesting that uh, that was a theme in the book where um, a lot of folks after Ian had died acknowledged that. Like, man, uh, we didn't really understand the lyrics, but they take on a completely different perspective after he took his life. Similar to Soundgarden and Chris Cornell, who also happened to uh, pass away on this day. Well, and obviously Kirk Bay. And um, so... You know, for me, I got a sense that in Ian's situation, there was everything he wanted, but he couldn't, but he was sick and he couldn't do it. And that, that must have been just so hard to live with. I don't think he was capable of making good decisions at that point because of the illness and because of the drugs. I think when you're in that state, and he might well have been depressive, he might well have been bipolar. Um, yeah. You know, and and you know, if you, none of that is going to make you is going to help you make good decisions. Uh, last question, then: what, what do you think the lasting legacy of Joy Division is? Well, I have to say that I find it extraordinary that there's such a big issue now. Um, back then, there are hundred people at the concert. You know, it wasn't a big deal. They were they were going up. Um, there's all sorts of reasons. Number one. The fact that it's a kind of a total artwork. You look at Unknown Pleasures and Closer, it's just a whole thing. It's a beautiful thing, from the cover to the music to everything. Um, secondly, there's um, the unfortunate fact of Ian's death and the fact, unfortunate reality that that then becomes a romantic myth of the beautiful young artist who dies young, same as, you know, Rudolph Valentino or James Dean. It's a very teenage thing. Teenagers like that kind of thing. It's dramatic and gothic and weird. But the main thing to me, really, is the music. The fact you have these wonderful songs. And there are about 45, 46 of them. And most of them are just terrific. And um, I really like um, Ian's lyrics. My favourite, the one I'm obsessing on at the minute is These Days. I just love These Days, which is on the B-side of... Um, Love will tear us apart, and he says, you know, we'll drift through it all, the modern age, take care of it all, all these debts are paid, and, you know, the hair goes up on the back of my neck. We'll drink through it all. That was author John Savage speaking with KEXP's Kevin Cole about his book, This Searching Light, The Sun and Everything Else, Joy Division, The Oral History. You can check out the full conversation on KEXP's Facebook page. Well, thanks for listening to Sound and Vision. Please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. You can also go the extra mile and give a one-time $20 donation at kexp.org sound. Thanks so much for listening.